prayer before study. Ineffable Creator, who from the treasures of your wisdom have established three hierarchies of angels, have arrayed them in marvelous order above the fiery heavens, and have marshaled the regions of the universe with such artful skill. You are proclaimed the true font of light and wisdom, and the primal origin raised high beyond all things. Pour forth a ray of your brightness into the darkened places of my mind. Disperse from my soul the twofold darkness into which I was born, sin and ignorance. You make eloquent the tongues of infants. Refine my speech and pour forth upon my lips the goodness of your blessing. Grant to me keenness of mind, capacity to remember, skill in learning, subtlety to interpret, and eloquence in speech. May you guide the beginning of my work, direct its progress, and bring it to completion. You who are true God and true man, who live and reign, world without end. Amen. Welcome back to Old Books with Grace. Today we are beginning the Julian of Norwich series. This is the first episode of eight, reading together Julian's amazing contemplative and theological masterpiece, often entitled Revelations of Divine Love, or Showings. If you need a reminder of Julian's historical background and context, check out the previous episode of Old Books with Grace. Today, I'm thinking about the common threads that draw together the different visions of chapters 1 through 9. I'm using the translation by College and Walsh in the Classics of Western Spirituality series. You can see the link to that, as well as to a free online version on my website, oldbookswithgrace.com. My words are not meant to be a summary of what Julian sees and interprets. For one thing, there are plenty of great resources that do that kind of work. For another, her work is so rich, ridiculously rich, that a podcast cannot begin to cover it. I focus here on what I see as the dominant themes and interpretations of this particular sequence, and some of their historical context to help us understand Julian's lesson of love, as she calls it. Julian's revelations begin when Julian, thinking herself to be dying, asks for the crucifix held in front of her. Priests or friends would often hold the crucifix up before your eyes during severe illness. They believed that focusing on Christ's sufferings would ease your own through the reminder of Jesus' pain for you and help the sufferer to feel less alone. We too are familiar with the loneliness of intense pain, that feeling of isolation when you are struggling and no one can share that burden with you. Then, Jesus on the cross, much to Julian's astonishment, begins to bleed. She writes in chapter 4, Suddenly, I saw the red blood trickling down from under the crown, all hot, flowing freely and copiously, a living stream, just as it seemed to me that it was at the time when the crown of thorns was thrust down upon his blessed head. She writes that he himself showed his sufferings to her, and she cries out, Blessed be the Lord. 
She's moved by his solicitude for her in her suffering. She thinks that as she is on her deathbed, Christ must be preparing her for temptation by devils, which is another common medieval thought that you were tempted at the hour of your death to abandon hope. We may think of Julian's intense focus on Christ's sufferings on the cross as strange, even pathological. You might have read this and been grossed out. But in fact, this kind of meditation belongs to a very powerful late medieval tradition, begun by theologians like Aelred of Rivo and Bernard of Clairvaux. Though these first practitioners and writers of this kind of meditation were initially monks and hermits, by Julian's time, lay people, ordinary people not in the ministries, were often encouraged to meditate like this as well. This tradition, focusing intently on a scene from Christ's life, especially the passion or his birth, in order to provoke an emotional reaction and thereby connection to Jesus, is often called affective piety. So imagine you're a medieval person living in the 14th century. What could you do to draw closer to God? If you were wealthy, you likely could read. If you weren't, you likely could not. Although scholars do now think that literacy was slightly more common than we thought at one time. Now add to this imagination that even if you could read, books are expensive, even luxury items. Additionally, the Bibles that do exist are almost always in Latin, as well as much of the Mass. Only the homily is in English. English Bibles did exist, but they were very rare. You wouldn't have had a quiet time and picked up a Bible to read Jesus' or Paul's words by yourself. As an average European person in the Middle Ages, your familiarity with the stories and the words of the Bible would have come through the carved sculptures on the inside and outside of your church, the stained glass windows donated by wealthy merchants and lords to your church building, and the extensive paintings on the interior walls of your church. Every church, even the poorest, had an image of Christ on the cross. Every church had an image of Judgment Day. If you couldn't read, these images, alongside your Parsons' teachings, were your primary source of meditation on God. What is now called affective piety taught its practitioners to intently focus on Jesus' suffering, especially by picturing the crucifixion um, extremely vividly or viewing art or reading. This practice of envisioning Jesus was meant to produce compassion in hard hearts towards Jesus and towards one another through evoking that strong emotion. If you're interested in another late medieval woman's words, you could look up Marjorie Kemp, who is absolutely fascinating and um, very active in this faith practice. In her own words, she often roars with grief as she considers Jesus' blood often in very public places, like streets and in the middle of churches. Late medieval artwork participates in this tradition as well. The Grunewald altarpiece at Eisenheim, which you can check out on um, the blog at oldbookswithgrace.com, or you can just Google it. It's a very famous art piece. Viscerally depicts Jesus' suffering. His fingers are gnarled in intense pain. The blood is dripping. His body already looks cadaverous. This artwork is from a little later, 1512, in a different country. 
but it accurately represents a European medieval attitude towards Jesus' suffering on the cross. We may feel squeamish about the idea of meditating so vividly on Jesus' pain, but medieval people viewed it as a devotional, meant to increase love, community, and emotional response. Julian clearly evokes this tradition when she considers the blood of Christ falling from the crown of thorns. In chapter 7, she uses incredibly vivid language to describe the great drops of blood. Pellets, fish scales, water falling off of eaves. These are all images that she uses to describe this blood. Then she tells us that this bodily example was shown to her so that human hearts may be, quote, ravished and lifted with joy at God's love. Definitely an emotional response. But as we will see in the following sections, Julian both deploys and deviates from these traditional uses of Christ's crucifixion as a means to increase compassion and devotion. Most medieval practitioners of this kind of meditation ended there. The compassion, the devotion, that was the end result. That was the goal. But Julian goes on to meditate on something really important to her, the greatness of God and the littleness of his creation. And this actually is the bigger theme tying together this section. She moves from viewing Christ's bloodshed to less gory meditations and more abstract showings. She sees Mary at the Annunciation and... um, For those of you unfamiliar with that term, the Annunciation is when Gabriel comes to Mary and announces that she will bear the Son of God, and and Mary consents to that. Um, But back to Julian. Uh, Julian sees a tiny object the size of a hazelnut. At times, Julian hears words rather than sees something vividly. In her understanding of Mary, the hazelnut-like object, and all that follows, Julian returns over and over to this theme of God's immensity and our littleness. Why? Julian makes this really clear with one of her most famous sections in chapter 5. He showed me something small, no bigger than a hazelnut, lying in the palm of my hand as it seemed to me, and it was round as a ball. I looked at it with the eyes of my understanding and thought, what can this be? I was amazed that it could last, for I thought that because of its littleness, it would suddenly have fallen into nothing. And I was answered in my understanding, it lasts and always will, because God loves it. And thus, everything has being through the love of God. Julian is scared for the little ball which she understands to be all of creation. It is so tiny and so fragile that she fears it will disappear. She notes how we put all our worth, all our trust into this failing tiny sphere of createdness. We mistake all this littleness on earth for the bigness of God. Instead, she prays, God of your goodness, give me only yourself. Julian even gives us a model of this kind of reception of God. My favorite part of this first group of showings is Julian's vision of Mary when Gabriel comes to announce she will bear Jesus. Julian revisits this moment twice in this section of chapters, and it even becomes a recurring theme throughout the rest of her text. 
it's an incredibly important moment and image to her and her theology of what it means to interact with the divine. She writes in the fourth chapter and the seventh, God showed me part of the wisdom and truth of her soul, that is Mary's soul. And in this, I understood the reverent contemplation with which she beheld her God, who is her creator, marveling with great reverence that he was willing to be born of her, who was a simple creature created by him. And this wisdom and truth, this knowledge of her creator's greatness and her own created littleness, made her say very humbly to Gabriel, Behold me here, God's handmaiden. This passage is easy to overlook. It's not very flashy. It does not have the ability to take nice, neat sound bites from it, like the hazelnut section. But if you're, um, and if you're a Protestant, you might even feel a little weird about Marian things. But it's very important that this section comes at the beginning of Julian's revelation. Note the language of Julian's description of Mary at the Annunciation when Gabriel comes to tell Mary she will bear Jesus. Reverence, contemplation, joy, humility, awestruck knowledge of God's simultaneous familiarity and greatness. It's the same language Julian was using to describe her own response to her sight of Christ on the cross bleeding. Julian aligns herself with Mary's reception of Gabriel because she understands Mary as the ultimate model of spiritual growth and learning. Mary's acknowledgement of littleness opens the door to her eager reception of the gifts and spirit of God. She intimately knows her own need and her smallness. She acknowledges simultaneously God's goodness. By aligning herself with Mary and aligning us with herself, Julian understands us all as following in Mary's footsteps. We too can bear the infinite fruit of God's goodness in our limited lives by receiving him with love and humility. Julian is in awe. Jesus' familiarity with us in becoming a human and suffering with us in our pain here defies our understandings of the distance and majesty of power. God's care for the hazelnut and Mary's awe that God would become so intimate with humanity that he would become a human in her womb highlight this juxtaposition of big and little, infinite with finite, God's loving tenderness with God's all-powerful might. We just had a chaotic election here in America. Imagine if one of these immensely powerful men running for our highest office gave up his power instead of reveling in it. Imagine that he deliberately makes himself vulnerable, approachable, weak, to share his life with us. Imagine if this powerful man actually and willingly suffered for those less powerful than him instead of working continuously to consolidate his own power. This is the great shock of the incarnation and the crucifixion that we lose through our familiarity with them. And this is what Julian draws from the juxtaposition of this first group of revelations, what she reveals as the common thread drawing together her awestruck viewing of Jesus' bleeding head, of the tiny, fragile hazelnut, and of Mary's acceptance to bear Christ. Jesus invites us all to become like Mary, fully acknowledging, even enjoying our littleness in need in order to participate with God in our redemption. 
Jesus himself follows this path. Julian writes in chapter 7, So it is with our Lord Jesus and us, for truly it is the greatest possible joy, as I see it, that he who is highest and mightiest, noblest and most honorable, is lowest and humblest, most familiar and courteous. In the Middle English, Julian actually uses the word homely, where the translation uses familiar. He is the homeliest with us. And now, homely, when we use it in American English, we think of like something that is not very attractive or kind of ugly. But homely in British English means something close to home, um, something that feels homey. And um, that's more how Julian was using it here. Something really intimate and comfortable and close. And I love that word here because it evokes the first chapter of John. And the word became flesh and made his home among us, and we have seen his glory. Our next episode will consider chapters 10 through 14 of Julian's long text, the next section. Feel free to read along yourself or just wait and hear what we're going to do. As always, I love to hear from you. Send along any thoughts or questions you have to oldbookswithgrace at gmail.com or through the blog at oldbookswithgrace.com. Thanks for joining me. I hope that you really enjoyed this time with Julian. Oh.